All right. Good morning, everybody. I saw some of you singing along, and you were tapping and clapping along, absolutely, because you know that, right? Maybe minus the end part, but props to some of our uh, Hope staff there for doing the spoof uh, on what, for a lot of you, was a really important, still is an important show, thanks to reruns, right? Any friends, fans out there, it's okay to admit that. Don't lie, you're in church. Uh, it's, for, for a lot of us, depending on what generation you're in or, or when you grew up, that was maybe a big part of your childhood of growing up. Uh, for certain generations, almost a cultural icon, and regardless of what's in the show, and I'm not endorsing everything that's in the show, and that's not necessarily our, our family-friendly uh, feature for today. However, you cannot deny the fact that for millions of people, and for a lot of people still, thanks to reruns, that show defined a generation. And for one big reason, I believe, among many, really sticks out, and I think it's simply this. We want that. We want that. We long for that, for the fun, for the joy, for the energy, the excitement of friendship. We long for those kinds of friends. You know those kind of friends that you laugh so hard you cry with? The kind of friends that you, can, you know so well that you can complete each other's sentences? It was nothing about the TV show. We don't long for necessarily communal living with people. We long for friendship. We long for the things that are deeper. We long for the people that we can laugh with, the people that we can cry with, as long as we need to as well. But it wasn't just that generation. It wasn't just friends. For some of you, if you go back a little bit farther in some of these shows, anybody, any I Love Lucy fans, right? Remember that one, right? Absolutely, right? How about going on a little bit? How about the Golden Girls down here? Any, you can admit you watch Golden Girls reruns way too late at night. That's okay. Uh, those are on. And then, of course, uh, how I Met Your Mother. Anybody, friends? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All these shows have one thing in common. They would have zero plot if it wasn't for the power of friendship, right? The entire show is based around the fact that these uh, networks and the people that produce and direct these shows have tapped into something about our human nature. We long for friendship. We long for healthy, authentic, fun Friends, which ties right in with our annual theme this year. If you've been away for a while, you need a little refresher up on our wall here is to know and be known, not just to be in a relationship with God, but to be in a relationship with others. And a big part of that is friendship. So we're in this little mini series right now. We're talking about three important relationships that a lot of us have in our lives. Number one, last week, Amanda talked about the power of family. This week, we're talking about friends, and next week, we'll talk about marriage and dating and all of those wonderful things that come with the birds and the bees. So you won't, if there's a teaser for you. You won't want to miss that next week. So we're talking about these important relationships, but you might be wondering, John, why focus an entire week just on friendship? I mean, it, for a lot of you, when you think of friends, you think of like, well, I, I come to church, and I know some people, and I do the Lutheran nod as I'm drinking my coffee, but I don't really have any like true, real friends at church. Friends is the, you know, the people you hang out with on Friday night. Not churchy people. Not these people I'm sitting around with today. These are like religious, churchy people. You can't actually have friends in the church, can you? Well, I hope I bust that myth today, if we do anything. That we bust that myth. For some of you, you've drawn up that distinction between friends are outside the church, and then there's the people that I see once a week on Sunday morning. But if you think about it, this idea of friendship, it permeates our lives. It's not just in the, the TV shows that we love. It's in the stories that we love. It's in the movies that we love. Let me just throw some pictures up, and you see if you can guess what movie that is, who those characters are, okay? Who's this? 
Bad Man Rob, the whole show based on friendship. They have to do it together. They have to stick together. Go to the next one. How about these guys, the two on the right or your left over here? Who are those guys? Right, Robin Hood and Little John, right? The bestest of friends and they're merry men. Next one, how about these guys? Anybody remember them? I just had to put that one up there for the dog love. Milo and Otis, do you remember them? Because cats and dogs always get along, right? The best of friends. How about these guys right here? All right? Right? He was my best friend, right? The whole show, right? It's based on that friendship that's at the center of it. And last but not least, the deepest friends of all, Harry and Lloyd, right? Showing us what true biblical friendship looks like. They stick together, literally stick together, no matter what, on their moped, all the way to Aspen, right? It's in the stories that we love. And some of you are saying, John, that's great and everything, but friendship comes so easy in Hollywood. On TV shows and in movies, because you just get to see the highlights. You just get to see the mountaintops. You never get to see the valleys. And a lot of life is lived in the valleys or in between the mountaintops where friendship can be difficult and you have to fight for it and it's hard. So what's in it for me, you might ask? This is a Hollywood thing. Well, it's not just a Hollywood thing. Turns out it's a human thing. It's how you and I were wired up. It's not a personality thing this morning, so don't check out if you're an introvert. Don't check out and say, well, you know, John, faith for me has always been more of a private thing. Don't check out. Let's go back to the beginning and see what God has to say. If you've got your Bibles, open up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Super easy to find. It's in the beginning. Just remember that, okay? Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go back to the creation story and how God has wired us up, believe it or not. Genesis 1 chapter 26 is where we're going to look at. If you remember the story, God spends five days creating everything, and then on the sixth day, he saves the best for last. The pinnacle, the, the masterpiece of his creation. And we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And for a lot of you, you know the story of creation. You've read that dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times, and you've missed one of the shortest words, but one of the most important words, our let us make humans in our image, meaning God is speaking in a plural sense. It would be helpful to remind ourselves that of the many attributes of God, we know that he is three and one, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you think about creation, you think about God as the one that created. But uh, contextual evidence throughout Scripture of the whole story will show that all three persons of the Trinity were present at creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God is the one that is speaking forth these things into existence, and we know that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, and there's evidence that he was there from the beginning. The Son was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So let us make humankind in our image. And so then and now and throughout history, we have been birthed into existence out of a almost a heroic fellowship, a heroic friendship. So when God says, let us make humans in our image of the many ways that we are image bearers and made in the image of God, the most basic is this. I love this, how one theologian writes this. He says, we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity, meaning the joy of relationship. At our deepest sense, deeper than personality, deeper than any of those personal preference, <laughs> Whether you want to be in a small group or not, that's way down the line. 
at our very core essence at the level of the soul, you and I were created in relationship for relationship. We bear the image of a relational God who's in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So some of you are thinking, wow, that's great, John, and everything, but how does that actually live out in real life? Well, skip ahead a few thousand years, and we get into the book of Ecclesiastes. You can turn there if you want, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going all over the place today, so we're going to get our Bible study in today. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and there's a guy named King Solomon. King Solomon was one of the wisest men uh, to have ever lived, not just the wisest, but one of the richest, the smartest, the most famous, rich. He had everything that he wanted, and a lot of Ecclesiastes is him looking back on his life. And we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. It says, there was a man all alone. So he's kind of telling you this parable looking back on his life speaking about himself. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, or as other translations, not brother in a blood relation sense, but brother in a friendship sense. He had neither son nor brother nor friends. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of such enjoyment? Meaning, he is going after everything the world has to offer. All the pleasure and all the success and all the wealth and all the material things that this world could possibly offer us. And what does he conclude? This, too, is meaningless. This is the king of Israel. This is meaningless, a miserable business. Everything the world could offer, and at the end of the day, he is empty. And what Solomon is saying, I am rich beyond imagination. I am rich on the world, but I have relational poverty. You know, there's lots of different kinds of poverty. We like to think of poverty of people that have money and that don't have money. Do you know that we're all in poverty? We're all at the same place at the foot of the cross. Spiritually, we're all in poverty. Thank God for grace that makes us rich in Jesus Christ. Amen? So this isn't about having money or not having money. In Solomon's sense, he's got everything. And yet what he's saying is, because I lack relationships, because I lack friends, everything else is empty. Everything else is empty. We spend so much time in our lives on things that don't matter on things that don't last. I've been walking with a family in our congregation the last few weeks as uh, one of the wonderful ladies is, has been battling cancer, and she died this weekend. And I, I've been there several times, and I cannot tell you how overwhelming it is to sit there and, like, normally as the pastor comes, I'm one of the only people in the room. As people are older in age, she wasn't that old. And so she has a lot of people that know her and love her, and it became obvious as like, I'm just sitting in the corner watching this parade of people come through the room. And I just kept, she can't speak in her later days, and I just kept whispering in her ear, you are so loved. You are so loved. And it just hit me. When you are lying there in your final days, Nobody's sitting around saying, man, I am so glad I worked 72 hours a week. So glad I was a workaholic. 
You know, I'm so glad I bought that extra car. I'm so glad I worried about how big my house was. Instead, the only thing that matters is most importantly, your relationship with God and where you're spending eternity. And secondly, those people that are around you. Solomon says, I'm the richest guy in the world. And yet I'm empty because I don't have friends. We weren't created to live life alone. And so Solomon concludes this chapter in Ecclesiastes and he says this. Let's read it together up on the screen. Two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. You were not created to live life alone. You were created for real, true, deep friendship. Yet if only we could say that that's the case for all of us, if that's our experience. I wish we could go around the room today and every single one, I would say, how's your relational life? How's your, how's your friendships? I mean, how's your marriage, but how's your friendships? How's your relationships? That Every single one of us, I wish we could say, I'm perfectly content. I'm perfectly satisfied with all of my friendships. I feel perfectly loved and accepted and known by others. I have no relational struggles whatsoever. If that was the case, books, movie, TVs, uh, TV shows, all of those would not exist. Music, none of it would exist because 95% of it is about what? Broken relationships. We can't say that. If you think about it, go back in your childhood. If you think about growing up, on your block or wherever you grew up, and the friends, the kids that were maybe around you, friendship was at our fingertips, wasn't it? Whether you like liked the kids around you or not, you played together, right? At school, you went out for recess together, and you played together, and you were friends with people in your class. That's what childhood is all about. Well, as you grow up, we start to put up barriers and things like that, and then for those of you that had an experience where you were on campus at college, think about that. Think how readily accessible and easy friendship was. You lived with people. You could go down the hallway and knock on the door and say, hey, want to go to Perkins at 2 o'clock in the morning? Sure, let's go. You know, whatever your experience was, you could do that. You went to class with people. You ate with people. You walked to class with them. You hung out with them on Friday. It was a, a built-in community. I think about that. And I'm speaking from my own experience. And then for some of you, you had that experience you got a little older, you graduated, you got your first job, you got really busy with that. For some of you, you got married, and then you made the mistake of thinking that you're going to find all your relational needs in your significant other, and you, your friend, your, all your friends of the same gender went, they got married and then they disappeared. Just because you get married doesn't mean that you don't have a need for friendship. God makes that pretty clear in his word. And then you have kids, and then you get busy, and then you're shuttling the kids around. And whatever stage, whether that's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, I've talked to people at all those different stages, 70, 80, and you never address it, and you wake up one day and you realize, you know what? I'm an adult, and I don't have any really good friends. Like, really good friends, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. I'm not talking about, hey, buddies. I'm not talking about people you offer a drink with on Friday night. I'm talking about people that know you. I'm talking about people that love you. I'm talking about people that know your story. And you realize that as adults, friendship isn't something that you can just passively kind of be a spectator to and have it come to you. You have to be proactive with it. You have to be intentional with it in our fast-paced, busy culture. Add to that Add to that that life seems to get busier and busier, and we're living in a world that has been, I think, unintentionally, but slowly but surely, redefining the word 
friend. If you ask anybody in the generation that I'm just on the edge of, the millennial generation, now the up-and-coming generation of centennials, as they're called, if you say, how many friends do you have, what are they thinking? Facebook, right? <laughs> and not just them, older people. So I have 672 friends on Facebook. How many friends do you have? Well, there's been some research done about this, and I normally don't get excited about this, but this was fascinating to me. There's been some research done about how our online culture of immediacy is affecting us. Do you know that you can have groceries delivered to your door? You can have anything delivered to your door now, right? If you want it, you can get it. Everything is immediate. Well, there's a famous psychologist researcher named Robin Dunbar. This is him. He looks like a pretty fun guy to hang out with. He's up there, and him along with his research firm have done some groundbreaking social studies, get, th get this, on the size of our brains as humans. So this is like hardwired, and you can't argue with this. It's just like it is what it is, right? The size of our brains and how that's relative to the amount of intimacy and the amount of friendships and true deep relationships that we're able to process because of the size and the capacity of our neurological system. And what he came up with is something called Dunbar's number. And if you look at that chart, he's drawing these circles out of the types of friendships we have and the intimacy at each level. And these are all relative, give or take five or ten on either side. But a lot of evidence throughout history will support this, that 150 is about the maximum number of people that we can process in our relation, relational circle. I'm not saying you're best friends with all of them, but people that you know and connect with somewhat regularly. And then Dunbar will say, going in from that, there's about 50 that he would call that's in your tribe, a little bit more casual friends, people that you may hang out with at some point. Beyond that is kind of a group of 15 that really know you, that know your story, that, that may, maybe if you were struggling or you were hurting, that you were calling, and even inside that, three to five that you would call your core, your best friends. And they studied this, and if you think about that, what my mind went to was Jesus. He comes to this earth, Scripture tells us he had around 150 or 200 people that were following him. He sent out the 72 and trained them around that 50 number. He had 12 disciples around that 15 number, and then within that, he had a core of Peter, James, and John, his three. Isn't that fascinating? Like, Jesus was like the smartest man who ever lived. This is how our brains are wired up. This is what we're capable of. Jesus was fully human. So he's experiencing the same thing that we are, but here's what's even more fascinating is that Dunbar and his team also looked at the effects of social media over time, over the last decade, and you would think, you would think that with all our technological advances that we would be able to process so much more. And although there was expanded collaboration and networking because of uh, social media and everything online, that 150 number didn't change. We're still who we are, but what was fascinating is that they showed in this study of thousands of people that they studied over a whole decade is the amount of emotional and intellectual brain capacity and energy that is spent on the outer rings started to affect their ability to focus on the three to five. Meaning our level of intimacy and our ability to do that decreased because of the clicks and the friends, and the shares, and the Instagram, and all these things that are taking up our brain capacity in the wider circles is getting in the way of intimacy. And this is what they said, that we're using 80 to 90% of our brain functioning on those outer 
rings. Secular scientists discovered that although collaboration and networking increased, it distracted from, or these are their words, not mine, simply doesn't have the ability to offer what face-to-face friendships do. I could have told them that and saved them millions of dollars, right? Look at the church. This is why we come together. We don't sit in our pajamas and watch church online. That's helpful when you're sick, but we need each other. One of my pastor friends, colleagues um, from another state, back in January, he was writing New Year's resolutions, and he was posting one online. He said, I, here's my New Year's resolution for 2017. Less Facebook, more faces, more books. I just thought that was interesting. I use Facebook. I love Facebook. I love Twitter. I, we, we use them as a church. We use all these things, and there's nothing wrong with them. But this is how Dunbar and his team summed this up. I thought this was so interesting. He says, online relationships and networking and in large circles of networks cannot do something, and that is shared experience, which is the main catalyst, they said, for friendship. And this is the statement. They said, it's like we've all seen the same movie, but we don't hear each other laugh or sit next to each other while we cry. Such an interesting commentary on where we're at. We are more connected and have more information at our fingertips than ever, and yet we're more disconnected and more isolated than ever. They are amazing tools, don't get me wrong, but I wonder if in our culture of immediacy, we have traded quality for quantity. And we have forget that friendship is forged in the day-to-day rhythms and the ups and downs of doing life together. The question is, how do we get there? How do we get to that place where we have those types of relationships and we start to spend more of our brains and our hearts and our energy on those types of relationships? Well, we turn to a pretty smart guy, another scientist himself named Sheldon Cooper. We turn to the Big Bang Theory. Has anybody ever seen this show? Another show based entirely on, can you guess? Friendship, right? These guys are living together, they're all kind of nerdy, and Sheldon is the nerd of all nerds, and he has discovered how to make friends. Let's check it out. And that's it. That's how you make friends. You just follow the simple flow chart. It's just that easy, right? Something in us says it's a little bit more difficult than that. We've looked at movies, we've looked at TV shows, and it's easy to look around at all of our friendships and all the other people and say, that's about what you can expect in 2017 in terms of the depth of friendship. It's all going to be surfacy, and especially for some of you that grew up in the church, when I say you can have deep, lasting, authentic, real friendships in the church, you say, that's not what church is for. Faith is more of a private thing. You don't actually get to know the people sitting around you and like hang out with them outside of worship, do you? Just because it's not what you grew up with doesn't mean it's not how you were created. Doesn't mean it's not how God wired you up. And so we look everywhere for advice on friendship, except the one who created us. And so I want to spend just a few minutes here digging into a couple stories about what God's word has to say about not a flowchart, but how to make real friends. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Samuel 18. We're going to go to the Old Testament and camp out there for just a couple minutes. 1 Samuel 18, it's on page 225 if you've got the Abundant Life Bible. You heard about King Solomon, well, let's look at his dad, David. King David, and when I say David, some of you think, oh, the guy with the smooth stones and the slingshot and knocked down Goliath. That same David, but he was also a king later in life. And a big part of what made David a great king was not just his power or his wealth, but the power of his 
friendships. And so 1 Samuel 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. So before David is king, Saul is king, and Saul is getting jealous of David, and so he starts fearing for his life, and yet guess who sticks by his side? His friend Jonathan happens to be Saul's son. So talk about a twisted triangle, right? Jonathan demonstrates the first quality, if you're keeping score at home and want to write this down, the first quality of a great friend, you love them as you love yourself. You love them as you love yourself, which should come as no surprise. Jesus is a pretty smart guy, picked up on this in Mark chapter 12. Pharisees ask him, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the first quality of a great friend, but the reality is it's hard, (laughs) Confession time, I'm really selfish. The more I get to know myself, I realize how selfish I am. You want to know how selfish that you are and how God needs to refine that in you. There's three things, I think, that reveal our selfishness like none other. Number one, get married. Number two, have kids. You keep dropping down the totem pole of importance here. Or number three, try to be a really good friend. Try to be fully present with someone else, and you'll realize how inwardly focused and much of a consumer that we are. Man, I, if I'm like Jonathan here, I, I want David to succeed more than I do, or just as much as I do. Sometimes I wonder if I took all the energy that I spend thinking about how I look and how I'm doing and everything, and I focus it on that three to five on a few other people, meaning I initiate the friendship, especially in the church. I don't wait for people to come to me. I initiate the friendship. I get out of my comfort zone and I go towards people, meaning I don't just, when somebody's struggling, I don't send an email or a sympathy card. I go and I sit with them on their porch and I cry with them as long as it's needed. Because here's the thing, and it took me all week to come up with this, and this is just going to blow your mind. Sacrificial love requires me and requires you to sacrifice something. I know, it's brilliant. Sacrificial love requires us to sacrifice something. And that usually means my time or my schedule or convenience or even my fear of getting close to somebody else. Ultimately, to love somebody like Jonathan loves David requires us to move out of isolation, which is the biggest hurdle for some of you. It's like we want the benefits of friendship without putting in the intentionality and the effort because we want things now. And friendship cannot be microwaved. It is a long, hard journey together. You can't stay closed off and move into action, which is the second key to great friendship. Love moves you to action. You don't just say it, you walk it out. Love moves you to action. Skip over to chapter 19 in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. We're just moving through the story. Saul told his son, he's so envious, it says Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what has he done has benefited you greatly. 
I don't know about you, but I want a friend like Jonathan who has my back when I have no idea what's going on. Who's got your back? Do you have those types of friends, or do you have friends that just kind of talk about you when you're not there? Who has your back, and more importantly, whose back do you have? Here's the second key, key to great friendships. Your love moves you to action for the other. It would have been so much easier for this story for Jonathan to hear that and to tell David, yep, uh, my dad's sending the whole Israelite army after you, and he wants me to get some other men so we can hunt you down and kill you. So good luck. I'll be praying for you, brother in Christ. And he sticks his neck out for him. He sticks his foot in the door, and he says, that's my friend. And I've got his back no matter what. I love how Proverbs 17, 17 puts it. Some more wisdom here from David's son Solomon. It says, a friend loves at all time, but a brother or sister is born for a time of adversity. Do you have friends like Jonathan that you could call and would come for you? I had a mentor right after college that I was meeting with, and he said, John, these are the types of friends you need to look for how you know if you have real friends or not. Let's say it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Let's say it's a completely unideal time and your marriage is on the rocks. Or you just lost your job. Or you're going through financial struggles. Or you had a relationship that just ended. Or you're weary of parenting, which I'm sure never happens. Who would you call? And who would point you to Jesus in that moment? Not just moan with you, not just complain with you, but who would remind you of who you are in Christ? Who are your 3 a.m. kind of friends? Do you have any? Or would that just be an inconvenience for most of the people in your circles? David had Jonathan. We all need those types of friends. And yet for David, his great friendships didn't end before he, uh, when he became king. It extended into when he was king as well. You never outgrow the need for friends. You never get too successful for the need for friends. So you move ahead in the story to 2 Samuel. Maybe some of you know the story. David commits this terrible sin. You've heard of David and Bathsheba. He commits adultery with another man's wife, and on top of it all, to cover it up, we know two wrongs don't make a right. He has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed to try to cover it up. And so he is swimming in sin, and yet he's in a pretty powerful position, and so you think he's untouchable. He can do whatever he wants, and yet he had a great friend named Nathan. And Nathan came to him, and instead of just calling him out, Nathan kind of goes for the heart and tugs at his heartstrings, and David, or excuse me, Nathan tells David this story about a man who's in a powerful position who takes something that's not his. And yet David is so consumed with himself because we all have blind spots, which is another reason that we need great friends, and David doesn't realize it. And so Nathan tells him this story and said there was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, and then the rich man took something that didn't belong to him, mainly somebody else's wife. David's so oblivious. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay four times over because he did such a thing and has no pity. And then Nathan, as a good, good friend, looks David, his friend, the king, right in the eyes and says, you are that man. I believe the technical term here is busted. Great friends don't just love you and accept you as you are. 
great friends speak the truth in love. Who do you have in your life that tells you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear? And what if we extended this idea to those in your small group or those in your Bible study today? Do you go to your small group to have your choices blessed? Say, oh yeah, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're doing, I'm sure it's fine. Or do we, let, do we go to our Bible studies, do we go to our small groups to be refined by the people that love us the most? In other words, a great friendship is where each person trusts the relationship enough to speak the hard truths into each other's life without fear of rejection because trust is the foundation. Does that make sense? We're not worried about being a hypocrite and calling somebody else out on something because we've already covered that. We're both sinners in need of a savior. We have a foundation of trust. It's not being a hypocrite. It's being a great friend. And I love you enough to challenge you on things once in a while. And that's mutual. Think about it this way. For those of you that have taken the core class, another way of thinking about this is that we have this axis. And you think about Jesus. There's another great example of friends. Three years to change the world. And what does he do? Starts with gathering some friends. Twelve guys. Pours his life into them for three years. And they changed the world. How did he do it? Great friendships. Great friendships. This is in the context of discipleship, but great friendships should lead to discipleship. Jesus offers high invitation to his disciples. He says, come follow me. I'm inviting you into my life. But then he also offers them something called challenge. High challenge. So you can have high invitation and high challenge on this axis. Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of Men, I'm going to call you out into something greater, and our friendship is not going to be based on how much we can consume, but on a purpose greater than ourselves of building the kingdom. Jesus offers high invitation and high challenge. The disciples laughed together and prayed together and walked together and ate together and goofed around together. They did mission together. They spent time together in the highs and the lows of life. Jesus invited them into the relationship, but he offered them a challenge. This is where the transformation takes place. That's a long word. That's where transformational, if you're looking to look more like Jesus, find friendships that offer you high invitation and high challenge, but the reality is most of us don't live in that quadrant because the reality is if we can have high invitation, that means we can have low invitation. If we can have high challenge, that means we can have low challenge. So think about these quadrants in the context of where your friendships are at. Okay? If you have high invitation but low challenge, it means, oh, it's fine. You can believe whatever you want, and it's, you can just keep on doing whatever you want, and I'll love you and accept you, and that sounds so great. But if you don't have a foundation to ever speak truth into each other, that becomes cozy or it becomes complacent. And that's really intriguing, and some of you are in those types of friendships but it's like you're walking on eggshells all the time because I don't want to say anything to mess up our friendship because what if they won't like me anymore? But after a while, those relationships become empty because you have no greater purpose. You're not doing anything together. That's why people come back from our mission trips after spending five days together and they're best friends. Why? Because they had a purpose bigger than themselves. They had a mission. That's why small groups get tight. You don't just sit around in the living room and study God's word. You go do God's word. You serve together. You have transformational type of relationships. It just gets complacent after a while. If you have no, no, no love and no acceptance and no challenge, I would say that that's just dead or 
boring, and those relationships don't last very long. But here's the tricky one. High challenge. Huh, speak the truth in love. I'm going to challenge you. And, and some of you love to fix. Husbands, we never fall into this trap, I know. Don't try to fix me. That happens in friendship, too. If there's a lot of challenge, but there's no love and pouring into each other and filling each up each other's tanks, you know what this leads to? Burnout. Or you simply drain each other. Do you have those people in your life that just drain you? Fill up, fill up each other's tanks. Some of you have friendships in those categories. Jesus says, this is where the transformation takes place. This is why powerful friendships are so important because they make you more like Jesus. Where would you put your friendships? Which quadrant? Where would you put your small group? How about your marriage? Where are most of your relationships today? Which ultimately leads us to the last characteristic of a great friendship. It's that we point each other to Jesus. When I meet with couples, and I think this applies to friendship, but when I meet with couples for pre-marriage counseling, I always look at the man. And I say, brother, your number one role in this marriage is to do whatever it takes to help her become the woman of God that she was created to be. And then I look at the woman, and I say, ma'am, your number one job in this marriage is to do whatever it takes to help him become the man of God that he was created to be. Because the most loving thing that you can do for each other in your relationship is point the other person to Jesus, even if it means having hard conversations sometimes, challenging them. I don't always like my wife because she challenges me and she refines me because she's my best friend and she cares about me. I don't always like her, but I always love her. We refine each other, and I believe that applies to our relationships as well. Because here's the thing. If we have to hide the deepest and truest thing about us in friendship, some of you are saying, I have great friends. But if the deepest thing about you is your identity in Christ, and you have to keep that hidden or off to the side in some of your relationships because you don't want to bring it up in the awkward conversation, and be like, oh, I don't know, if they find out that I'm a Christian, then I can't be friends anymore. Is that really an authentic friendship that you have to hide the deepest and truest part of yourself? I'm not saying don't be friends with those people. I'm just saying in your three to five, at least in your two to three, who are the people that are going to point you to Jesus? Who are the people that know you best? The most loving thing we can do is point people to Jesus. That's what's got to define that inner circle. And yet we've talked about Forrest, we've talked about Sheldon, we've talked about Bubba, all these great friends. We've talked about all these Bible characters, but our main example of an ultimate friend, well, it turns out we have a great leader that knew it all. In our passage today from John 15, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, with his friends, and he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he offers this challenging statement. Let's read it together up on the screen. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. At the end of the day, our model of friendship isn't movies or TV or culture, or even what everybody else is doing. Our model of friendship is the kind of love that was shown 2,000 years ago on a cross. And we receive that love from Jesus Christ even when we didn't deserve it. Think about what Jesus did. His love moved him to action. Jesus offered invitation and challenge to his disciples, and ultimately he offered unconditional love. And Jesus even says in verse 15, because of what I've done on the cross, 
Jesus says, you're no longer my enemies. You're no longer slaves. Get this, the God of the universe calls you his friends. You are my friends. The invitation of Jesus today is to be a friend of God. Sometimes I wonder (laughs) what Jesus would do if he lived among us here in Des Moines in 2017, surrounded by our smartphones and social networks and busy people like us. Well, I wonder if he would do what he did his whole ministry, and that's invite people to be known, to gather people together, broken, imperfect people like you and I, and gather us together for an opportunity to be known. Take a look at this final clip at a gal who I think would be doing, is doing what our Savior has done. Let's take a look. There was a man 2,000 years ago that loved dinner parties. And he loved them so much that on the night that he was to be handed over to his death, decided to have dinner with his friends. And Jesus gathered his disciples, his friends around him, around a, probably a long table, and shared what we know as the bread and the wine that we celebrate in Holy Communion, but don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's demonstrating to us, this is how I created you to live, face-to-face, in the joys and the struggles of life. And my invitation to you, imagine what it would be like to be one of Jesus' disciples sitting across, having the God of the universe look you in the eye and say, let's be friends. Don't click it. (laughs) Let's live life together. I no longer call you slaves. Jesus says, I call you friends. And the offer to you is to be known. Yes, even with the people in church. Join a small group today. Take a class, start serving, get to know people, be known by the God who created you. Step out of isolation and start experiencing friendship the way that God created you to have it. Let's stand and pray together. So Jesus, we thank you for this offer, this incredible invitation that we know that We have the tendency to just roll through our days and roll through our week and for it to get so busy and we get distracted by so many things and we miss out on the richness of relationship, particularly those relationships centered in Jesus Christ. But God, today we say we want more. As your church, we want to be that kind of a church where these are people that we know and we love. And so we want more in our friendships. We want more in our relationships. We want more in our marriages. We want high invitation, high challenge, transformational type friendships. And we ask you for that, God. Surround us with those people. Help us to be intentional and go deeper with the friendships that we already have. Bring people uh, into our lives to know us, to love us well. And may we pursue others in Christ-centered friendship as well. God, help us to move out of our isolation, out of our comfort zones, and towards others this week. Cross our paths with others that need your love and your compassion. As you filled us up with your love, God, send us out with your love to a world that needs it. God, we love you and we thank you for calling us friends. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Amen. Now that you've come to church, go be the church. Go get connected. Amanda's at the Welcome Center. Go join a small group. We'll see you next week. God bless you.